Dear Heavenly, to be with us today, and thank you for another glorious day. Be with Pastor Ben as he delivers the message. Uh, let us thoroughly soak in every word and uh, rejoice you as we continue our beautiful Sunday. Amen. Thank you, Dylan, for leading us this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we will be as we continue walking through uh, this book. It's been good and it's been helpful, and now we're getting into, uh, not quite today, but, but here in the next few weeks, we'll start getting into some of the more controversial uh, passages in 1 Corinthians, and we'll walk through them with grace and mercy as we do so. Remember, the book is written by Paul. Uh, it's to First Baptist Corinth, or just the church at Corinth. Um, Paul's writing to this church to kind of help them unify. That's been their big issue. There's disunity amongst the church. Some people have their favorite teachers. Some people have their favorite gifts. Some people have their favorite all sorts of various things. And so you look at this little local body of believers in Corinth, and what you see are just fragments all over the place. But Paul deeply loves this church, and this church has some very deep and pressing issues. And so it's comforting for us that we can read this and see this church is not perfect, yet the Lord is perfect. And that by God's grace and by God's mercy, he can draw us and make us more perfect in and of himself. And so we've seen a bunch of those things take place. And now we get to uh, an interesting chapter and an interesting passage that we come to today where Paul, talking through all of these issues, talking about all of these things that take place, is now going to look back at Israel's history. And he's going to remind the people, all of these things took place as examples for you, to remind you, to teach you, right? These are real stories, real things that God sent real people through. And now as believers in Jesus on this side of the cross, we can look back at these things of Israel and we can understand that these things were meant to be examples for us, things that we can look at and that we can grow and we can trust in God because God is faithful. God always has been faithful, is faithful, and always will be. And so let us uh, read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll pray and, and work through this like we always do. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't complain as some of them did and they were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the age have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except that which is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way so that you may be able to bear it. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning to this passage of Scripture and this text that we're going to walk through, I pray, Father, that you would soften our hearts. 
that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, that you would convict us where we need conviction. God, as we walk through this passage and the overarching theme that we see is that you are faithful. That you were faithful back then, that you are faithful currently, and that you will be faithful for eternity. That we can hang our hat on that. That we can trust in that no matter what happens in life, whether it's to us as a country, to us as a community, or to us individually, that you are faithful. Help us to grow in you this morning. Help us to lean into your gospel, to see you, Jesus, and to trust in you more. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, typically, when I preach sermons, I try to lump verses together so we just kind of have a nice and neat set of points to, to walk through. But this morning, I'm not going to do that. We're just going to walk through a verse, look at the verse, walk through a verse, look at the verse, mainly because nearly every single verse that I just read has an Old Testament passage that it's alluding to. And so to be faithful to that, instead of doing three points in a poem, which is the Baptist way to preach a sermon, we're going to just walk through this literally verse by verse as we kind of look at it and examine it and at the end we'll tie it all together. So verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So we look at this passage, right, and we come off of this section where Paul has been talking about Christian liberty. Right, These are what he deserves as an apostle. You should, you, he deserves to be paid. The pastors can be paid. And now he says, but there's liberty here. There's freedom within the Christian church, to, freedom to obey God. And so he turns to this example to illustrate for us God's faithfulness in all of this. And so he calls the church, right, brothers and sisters. There's this close affection with them. And then he says, our ancestors. So who is he talking about when he says ancestors? Is it the older people in the church like Daryl and Keith? No. I didn't say, Tina, you're so much younger than Daryl. You don't look it. (laughs) He's talking about Israel. He's talking about this nation that was God's people that we read about in the Old Testament. We read about in the New Testament, these ancestors that Paul is drawing a close connection to the church of Corinth and to uh, Israel together with this passage. And so Paul says, all were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, Moses says this, And the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of of cloud, leading them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire uh, at light in the night so that they could travel by day or by night. This is Moses when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness after they've been rescued from Egypt. And what we're learning in the story is that there's a pillar of cloud that leads them by day and there's a pillar of fire that leads them by night. If you read the Old Testament and you look at the Old Testament, a lot of the times when God's glory would show up, it shows up as a cloud. When the temple is first built and they, they do the ceremony and host it, it's a cloud that comes out of the temple. When Moses goes to Mount Sinai to get the law, it's a cloud that's covering the mountain, that it's God's glory that's doing those things. And so what we read here is our ancestors, right, is what Paul is saying, the Israelites were all under this cloud, all under this authority of God. And he's drawing us to the text of, of the pillar of cloud leading him in the day and the pillar of fire leading him at night. So what that tells us is we've got to invest in a fog machine. No. Right, that's not what the text is saying. We don't have to have a fog machine to have the Holy Spirit. We can't manufacture. If we're trying to manufacture the Holy Spirit, then we have bigger problems than if the fog machine works or not. 
And what he's saying is that Israel was under this protection of God. That they were guided. All right, when the, the cloud would settle, they wouldn't move. And then when the cloud would move, they would follow the cloud. And if it was daytime, they could see the cloud. And if it was nighttime, it was fire. So they could see the fire and they could walk and they could be where God was taking them. That he was leading them, that he was guiding them, that he was protecting them in the midst of this traveling, in the midst of this wilderness. It has all passed through the sea. Exodus 14, chapter 20, uh, ver, chapter 14, verse 21 says this. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea of all power from the east and nigh, and he turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. We know the story of when uh, the Israelites were in Egypt and God parted the Red Sea that they could walk through. Do you know he does it another time in the, New Te- or in the Old Testament? That, that two different times we see seas being parted and that all of Israel is walking through these seas. And it's all of them. It's not just some. It's this people of God following this cloud, this people of God following this, this mist, this, this glory of God being led by him. And then it's going through the sea. What we see with the sea is there's protection there. That there's deliverance. That there's a path that God's laying out, right? God didn't sit in the sea, open it up, and there's multiple paths for the Israelites to pick which one they felt would work best for them. One path. And they walk it together. And it's protection. But their biggest enemy that they could imagine at the time is the army of Pharaoh and all of his chariots that are literally chasing them, trying to kill them. And what God does is he says, I'll open up the sea, you walk through it, and let me handle the Egyptian king. So all went through under the cloud. All passed through the sea. Look at verse 2. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So what we see Paul doing is he's taking these Old Testament stories, right? These, these two examples from the Old Testament, and now he's applying them in the New Testament in a way that we might not initially think we should apply them, but Paul does it for us, and so we can look at it and say, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Baptized. Baptism. So what we know with, with baptism, if we're believers, right? We baptized uh, four people last week. Uh, it was great, lots of fun. The water was nice and warm. It will be if I'm doing baptisms. That's a, a promise. But what baptism for us is, is it's the front door. It's the entrance into the church, right? That does not save us. It's not you have to be baptized to be saved. It's you become a believer in Jesus Christ, that God has saved you, and then you're baptized as a sign, as a symbol of what God has already done in your life. And so for us, you can't join the church unless you're a baptized believer in Jesus Christ. And so it's the entrance into our church. It's the front door. It's how you become a part of the family that God has given us. It's how you get into the congregation. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 says, Or are you unaware that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 says, For those who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. So Paul, looking at this people of Israel, saying you, you followed after the cloud, you walked through the sea, and now you're baptized into Moses. It's this very real sense that coming out of that Red Sea beforehand, when you're in Egypt, you're this people of God, but you're kind of intermixed with all of these Egyptians. Once you go through the sea, it's a whole new thing. Now you're one people group. You're one nation that's walking out of there, and it's distinct and it's clear to the people themselves, and it's distinct and it's clear to all of the other nations around them. This is the people that defeated the mighty Egyptian army. Not really the people, but the God of this people defeated the mighty Egyptian army. 
This is the people group that walks around the walls of Jericho while they're dumping grape slushies on top of their head. If you're a VeggieTales fan, that's what they say. And then they blow the trumpets and the walls fall down. This is the people whose God is mighty. This is the people whose God saves. This is the people whose God can fight against all of the other deities of the day, the deities of the day, and defeat them and destroy them. It puts this people of God together. It draws boundaries. The same thing is true for you and I. That when we're baptized, what we're saying is we don't belong to that other stuff anymore. That we go through the water and when we come out on the other side of the water, we belong to God. We belong to the people of God that we've been redeemed, that we've been saved, that our life is no longer about living that way. Now we're under this God who saves, this God who redeems, this God who destroys our biggest enemy. And our biggest enemy anymore isn't Egypt. It's not China either. It's not Russia. It's not Hermley. Our biggest enemy that you and I face is the indwelling sinful nature that we have. It's us. It's that our hearts are broken. It's that our hearts desire to be rebels against God. It's that we are the issue. And what God does is he saves us from ourselves. That we can't work our way up to heaven. That we can't be good enough in and of ourselves. That instead we repent of ourselves. We repent of our sin. We turn from our sinful nature. We go to Christ and we trust that God saves us. And that when God saves us to himself, he saves us to his people. To the church. Verse 3. They all ate the same spiritual food. Why we know that Baptist is the true denomination. We had a funeral, and you great Wednesday with the funeral meal, and there's always nerves, but man, we had enough food to feed the funeral family and all of the kids on Wednesday night. It stretched, got multiplied. And I'm not going to say who, but Peggy and I hid Jody's green beans from you all on Wednesday night. Just wanted to, I felt like I needed to share that. See, so what Paul's doing is he's talking now about the manna that the Israelites were fed in the desert. But if you still know the story of the man when they're wandering around in the wilderness, they're worried about what they're going to eat. And so God says, don't be worried. I'm going to, every morning you're going to wake up and there's going to be this bread that's scattered around the ground. Gather up what you need for that day. Don't gather up two days worth, gather for that day. And you eat that bread for the day and then whatever you uh, isn't taken or if you take extra, it gets moldy, it gets wormy, except for on Friday because the next day, Saturday, was the Sabbath. And he said, you gather two days worth on that day and that day alone. And that's how God fed the people in the wilderness with this manna, this spiritual food. We see this in Psalm 78, verse 24 through 25. And he rained manna for them to eat. And they gave uh, them grain from heaven. And the people ate the bread of angels. And he sent them an abundant supply of food. We see God taking care of his people through this meal. That they're all eating together. We recognize that there is something important and something special in our relationships with one another to sit down and eat meals together. We see this throughout the New Testament, and we see it in the Old Testament as well. But they had the Last Supper together. They fed the 5,000 when Jesus multiplied the bread together. We recognize that God's given us baptism as an ordinance, and he's given us the Lord's Supper as an ordinance. That we take the bread 
together. The way we do Lord's Supper is helpful and it's good for us, but it doesn't give us the full picture of what God's doing with the Lord's Supper, right? In the olden days, they would take the bread and they would break it so everybody would eat from the same loaf of bread. We eat from the same package of bread that we buy at the store, but it's the same bread. So baptism's this front door that brings us into the church, that helps us to join the family of God, and then what do families do? We eat. And so we take the Lord's Supper together regularly. Often is what the scriptures say. For us, that's at least once a month. That we eat the bread with one another. It reminds us of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. But they had the same spiritual food. Look at verse 4. And they all had the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So, so we know with the Lord's Supper, it's not just bread, right? But there's also juice. Welch's grape juice is with the New Testament when you parse out all of the Greek means. It's wine. It's grape juice is what we use. So there's this importance with the spiritual drink that takes place there as well. That God has given us these things. The Lord's Supper is important. Baptism is important. They're not things that we sweep aside and we do when we remember. They're things that are on our calendar, that we schedule, that we make sure that we're trying to do. Because if we're going to be a healthy and biblical church, we eat together often. And when somebody wants to join, they're baptized into the family of God with us. But look what happens. Paul keeps going. He says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. There's a rabbi, rabbi, I don't know how to say the word, rabionic, rabionic, a bunch of rabbis. There was a tradition they would pass through. There's not really a New Testament text that says this, but this is the tradition the rabbi, or an Old Testament text, the rabbis said that there was a well that would follow the Israelites wherever they were wandering in the wilderness. There's maybe a glimpse of it in Numbers 21, 17, but it wasn't enough to say this is certainly what God is saying. For certain what we know, and we know from the Old Testament, is wherever the Israelites went, they drilled wells. We see this in the New Testament, too, where Jesus is going to Jacob's well. Who's Jacob? Jacob's one of the patriarchs of the faith, that they would have these wells and that God provided water, that he provided sustenance for them throughout their time of wandering. So in that sense, no matter how we look at it, this water followed the Israelites. Wherever God led them, he provided for them, he sustained them, he protected them. But then Paul keeps going. See what he says. And that rock was Christ. And there's so many stories from the Old Testament we can think of when we think of rocks and we think of water. Psalm 78, verse 15 through 16 says this. And he, this is Moses, split rocks in the wilderness and gave drink to them as abundant in the depths. He brought streams out of the stones and he made the water flow like rivers. We know the story of Moses. The reason Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land is because when God tells Moses, hey, take the rock and I'm going to pour water from it, Moses adds a little flair, adds a little bit of zeal to it. He hits the rock with the stone or he hits it with his staff and he does this deal. And God says, that's not what I said to do. He still provides water. He still is, but he tells Moses, your punishment's now. You're not going into the promised land. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect. His ways are just. A faithful God without bias, he is righteous and true. A few verses later in verse 18, you ignored the rock who gave you birth. You forgot God who gave you birth to you. We see later in verse 31, but their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies can see that there's this idea in the Old Testament, and those are just a few glimpses of this idea of the rock. Even in Deuteronomy 32, there's more references, and there's more in the Old Testament as well, that the rock is always directed at God. 
But what we see Paul doing is he's saying the rock is Christ. It's a Christological statement. It's the New Testament. It's Jesus. It's Paul saying Jesus Christ is God. He's not less than God. He's not created by God. He's not subordinate in that sense. He is God completely and fully 100% in the flesh that Jesus is God. This is important for us because there's all sorts of false religions that will get this wrong. Nearly every false religion around us, whether it be Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism or whatever it is, Islam, all say that Jesus was created, that Jesus was important, that Jesus was valuable, that he was not God. But the New Testament unequivocally states that Jesus Christ is God. He is the rock. All of the New Testament writers agree with this. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. And Lord there is directly referring to Jesus. So everyone who calls on the name of God is what it says in the Old Testament. Or in the New Testament, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, who calls on the name of Jesus, it's this Jesus is God. Philippians 2, 10 through 11 says this, For at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is not created. He is the creator. He is God completely and fully. And Moses is pointing that to us. And Paul is pointing that to us. That the same spiritual drink, the same spiritual food that the Israelites were eating is from the spiritual rock, the same spiritual rock that you and I get our spiritual water and food from today. But look at verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. See, this is a hinge point. The first few passages are talking about these positive things that God had done with the Israelites. And now we're going to see a swing where God's going to say, this is why the Israelites were punished. This is what happened because they disobeyed God. Their ending, their judgment came. That he wasn't pleased with most of them. That they were struck down in the wilderness. We know the story of the promised land, right? They, they go into the promised land and what happens? They're scared. It doesn't matter that God had taken them out of Egypt, that he had split the Red Sea, that he had defeated Pharaoh's army. It doesn't matter that they had watched around Jerusalem and destroyed the walls of that city. It doesn't matter that God had protected them over and over, that he had provided food. And when they complained about the food, he provided quail and that he had given them water out of the rocks. None of that mattered to them when they stepped foot in the promised land, went and sent their spies, and they saw these people are big. I don't know if we can take them. Joshua says we can but the rest didn't. And so their punishment is they wander the wilderness for 40 years until that generation dies. And it's Joshua and the new generation that get in. God was not pleased with most of them. They were struck down in the wilderness. And look what Paul says in, in verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. See, one of the problems that's taking place here, and we'll see it in next week's passage, what Paul is setting up the argument for is an argument he's already made, but now he's going to dive into it a little bit deeper, and it's should we eat food that's been offered to idols or not? 
in Corinth, there was a huge temple. And a part of the cultural celebration, a part of culturally being accepted into Corinth, is that when somebody invited you to eat of the temple sacrifices, you would go and eat of them. And if not, you'd be kind of outcast from society. You'd be pushed away, pushed aside, that it would come with real persecution. It would come with real struggles. It would come with really being kicked out of a place that you call home. So Paul's going to get into that, but, but he's setting all of that up by looking at Israel's history right here. He's alluding to Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. He says this, The riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. And then Israel wept again. Who will feed us meat? This is the Israelites. Idolizing food, grumbling, desiring evil things. Psalm 106, 14. They were seized with their cravings in the wilderness and God and tested God in the desert. That this sin, this desire for evil comes down to coveting. They looked around and they saw other nations that were eating meat, other nations that were having the things that they thought that they wanted, and they coveted what they had as opposed to the God who was taking care of them. And God says, don't desire evil like they did. Look at verse 7. Don't become idolaters as some of them were, for it is written that people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to party. This is a very clear reference to the story that if you've been a Christian, you know the story. When Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to get the law, he goes up and there's the cloud and he's up there. And then God says this in Exodus chapter 32, verses 6 through 7. Now, early the next morning, they arose, burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And the people sat down to eat and got up to party. That's in Exodus. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once. For your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way I commanded them, and they have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. You see what Paul is connecting the Israelite story to? Idolatry. False gods that Moses has just taken the people out of the wilderness. The Red Sea's been split. They get out of Egypt and they get out of Egypt alive and the army's now destroyed and Moses goes up to get the law of God from the mountain and while he's up there the people go, you know what? Let's make a golden calf. And you see what they said? They begin worshiping the golden calf. They say it's these idols. These are going to be our lower G, lowercase g gods. These are what took us out of the land of Egypt. This is what saved us. While Moses is talking to God on Mount Sinai. The explanation when they get down is, is just as bad. Aaron goes, well, we just threw the, the metal, we threw the gold in the fire, and then just boom, a calf popped out. I'm not a rancher by any means. I have one cow, and we're, we've got a 50% success rate with cattle, and one cow tried to kill me. But I know that's not how golden calves are formed that they were intentional. It's so much easier to worship a God who's fashioned in our image that we can control, that we can tell what to do, than it is to worship a God who is far above us and tells us what to do and how to worship him. 
We may think idolatry is gone because we're not making golden calves and fires and blaming it on other things, but we have idols all around us. And if we're honest, many of those idols seep into our hearts as well. But they're good things. They're not necessarily bad things, but they're good things that we take from the level of good and we put up to the level of God that they control us. Those idols can be all sorts of different things. We must be careful. Because we see in Numbers 25.9, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. So as judgment, as punishment of this, God killed a bunch of the Israelites. Now there's a cool textual thing we need to understand because if we talk to unbelievers about the Bible, this may be a point that they bring up. If you catch in verse 9, Paul said in a single day 23,000 people died. But when you get to Exodus, it says 24,000 people died. So does that just mean the Bible's not true, that we're just throwing numbers out there? I mean, whatever. No, that's not what Scripture's teaching us at all. Most likely what happened is both of the authors rounded. Moses rounded up to 24,000. Paul rounded down to 23,000. But there's a number of explanations for this. It doesn't mean the scripture's not true at all. It just means it's there for us. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to party, and God judged them because of this. And that judgment was a struggle. That judgment was death. Verse 8. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Sorry, I read that that text in, in, in Numbers early. Numbers 25, 1 through 5 says, While Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to prostitute themselves with the women of Moab. And the women invited themselves to sacrifice to their God, and the people ate and bowed down and worshipped to their God. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that his anger may burn away from Israel. So Moses told Israel's judges, Kill each of the men who aligned themselves with Baal of Peor. I, I read verse 8 as if it was with Exodus. Sorry, I got my, my notes off. Verse 8 that comes with this is what takes place after this, that, that they go and they... I, skip the middle verses because it's pretty graphic and there would be some kids here but they take and they kill all of these people and that's where we see 24,000 people being killed that it's the judgment because of the sexual immorality that took place that this is tied to idolatry they were sacrificing to fake gods God's people the people who walked through the water ate the manna Verse 9, let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. Numbers chapter 21 verse 5 says this, the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water and we detest this wretched food. The food God cooked, they detest. They've never eaten in a school cafeteria. Verse 6, then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that we will, uh, that he will take away the snakes from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake image and mount it on a pole. And when anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. And whenever someone was bitten, he looked at the bronze snake and he recovered. 
If you've seen the, the paramedic logo or the EMS logo, this is where they get it from. If you look at it and you think of it in, in your mind, there's the pole that goes up and then there's the snake that twirls around it. This is the story where they get that symbol from. Then we see that they, they, they tested, and we see another Christological statement, right? In the Old Testament, they don't say Christ, but in the New Testament, Paul's saying, no, they were testing Jesus Christ. They complained. There's no bread, there's no water, and this food that we have is not quite good enough for us. They test God. And so God says... Here's your judgment. Poisonous snakes. Sends them out. It's scary for us when we live around rattlesnakes, isn't it? That even the rattlesnake bites not beyond the Lord. And so they repent, and they repent from talking against the Lord and against Moses. <laughs> And God, instead of saying, fine, and then wiping out all of the snakes, instead says, here's what I'm going to do to remind you of this. That when you get bit, it's going to hurt. When you get bit, you'll feel the poison. When you get bit, it's going to be hard and it's going to be painful. And the way that you get over that is you look at this pole that we've made. You look at this snake to remind you that God is the one who sent this and God is the one who can take it away. That God is faithful. Verse 10, and don't grumble as some of them did, and they were killed by the destroyer. This one's a struggle for us, isn't it? We know the story of the Israelites. There's far too many references in the Old Testament for us to read through them all now where the Israelites grumbled and complained about God was doing for them. Paul wrote Philippians. Look what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. Do you know what Paul is saying? That if we grumble against God, if we complain against God, what it's revealing about our heart, no matter how small or how little we think the grumbling is, is it's revealing a heart in us that thinks that we're better than God, and if we were God, we would do it different and better than he's doing it. It's idolatry. It's thinking that we're somehow better than God. That what he's doing is not enough. Either he's not powerful enough to change the problems that we have in our life, or he's not all-seeing enough to see the problems that are taking place, or he's not omnibenevolent enough to see what we need and give us the good that we think that we need, that there's some lacking in God. And if we were God, we would fix the problems, not like God's doing right now. That's not the Scriptures. What we see in this text, which is kind of frightening a little bit when we think about it, is those who grumble, those who complain, who that's the natural disposition of your heart. The scriptures are pretty clear. That means you're not trusting in the Lord like you should be. And Paul says in verse 15, children of God. So don't do anything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God. But if you recognize that in yourself, you need to be careful. Verse 11. Now these things happened. 
talking about all of the Old Testament stories that Paul has just riddled off as examples. And they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the age have come. So what Paul's doing is he's saying, look at all of these stories. Remember the history of the Israelites. Remember the history of God's people. And there were things that God did that they were good, right? They were all under the glory of God. They were all under the cloud. They were protected by God. They were delivered by God. That God had used them in the midst of pagan nations and pagan lands to make his name great, to spread his fame across the world, that you were baptized into these people, that you ate the, the Lord's Supper, so to speak, with the manna and with the spiritual drink, the water that comes from the rock and that rock was really Jesus giving this spiritual water that you had all of these things, yet God wasn't pleased with them because they continually rebelled against God in various ways, right? They were struck down in the wilderness. Uh, They desired evil instead of after God. They idled. They wanted to have idols. They made their own golden calves, and so God killed. They committed sexual morality, and so they were destroyed, that they were destroyed by snakes because they tested God, that they grumbled, and so there was others who were killed in the wilderness because of these things. Heed the warnings that God is giving us from this nation. It's written for our instruction. It's written to help us understand that God is faithful. The lie that you and I are being taught by the world, always and forever, all the way back, this is the lie of Satan, the flesh, and the world, and this is the lie that will continue on until Jesus comes back. What the world always does is it will elevate us and it will de-elevate God. Always. It makes it looks at God's word and it says, well, is God really saying that? Is that how you feel? Is that your experience? Is that what your tradition says? All of our sin can be boiled down to that. All of our struggle can be boiled down to that, whether it's individual or us as a group of people. Is it's taking God and lowering him in our hearts, and it's taking us and elevating it. So look what Paul says in verse 12. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. That if we think we stand above the Lord, if we think we've got life figured out, if we think that we're able to do all of these things in our own power and in our own might, by our own will, we need to be careful because God in his grace should humble us. Destroy those kingdoms that we elevate and build. See, the way we talk about it now that kind of makes sense is we'll say you just need more self-esteem. That's your problem in life. If you had more self-esteem, then you would be good to go. Or self-confidence. Or self-whatever trait it is that you feel like you need. But that's elevating man over God. You're not enough to be your Savior. You don't need more of you. I don't need more of me. I need less of me and more of Christ. As John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. I don't need self-esteem. What I need is the gospel of Jesus Christ to wash over I don't need self-confidence. What I need is the confidence that God is faithful and is not beyond any, nothing is beyond him to lean into trust in the gospel more. I don't need selfishness. And even if we're honest, selflessness can be selfish too, right? It feels good to be selfless. It feels good to help other people, right? We, can, we are so good at sinning. We can do selfless things from a selfish motive. I'm the most humble person I know. That's not how that works. We lean into Christ. We trust into Christ because look at verse 13. 
No temptation has come upon you except that what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. Can I tell you how this verse has been summed up and it's wrong? We've summed it up as God's never going to give you more than you can handle. It's not true. It's not true at all. God is going to give you far more than you can handle. Because what the Lord is doing in us, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, is he is ripping that sinful nature from us. He is ripping those idols. He is destroying those kingdoms. I pray that God gives us more than we can handle because it's when God gives us more than we can handle that we turn and we trust in Jesus Christ more and more. We see in James chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, James says this, No one undergoes a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. So we take that verse, and then we tie it into this. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. Do you see what, what Paul is telling us here? It's the same thing. Our temptations, our struggles are always going to boil down to selfishness in some form or in some fashion to greed. That we're going to de-elevate God and elevate ourselves. All of our sins take place that way. Well, why did you lie? Because I wanted something. So we elevate ourselves over what God tells us. Why did you steal? Because I wanted something. Why did you cheat? Because I wanted something. It doesn't matter what God says in those stakes. His word is less important than ours in our hearts and our minds. That's what sin does. That's what Paul is telling us. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. How are we able to bear it? What is Paul saying there? Saying the way out, the temptation, right? We're not going to be destroyed. We're not going to suffer. The, the, the way out of those temptations is to turn to Jesus Christ. That he is able, whatever we bear. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning, Hebrews 4, 15. We have a great high priest who's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he can because he suffered the things that you and I suffered. He was tempted like you and I were tempted. He was tried like you and I were tempted, yet he does not fail like you and I fail. We have a God who is not distant from us and not connected, but a God who intimately makes himself known to us through the word, through coming to us through the gospel so that we can have faith and we can trust in Jesus. He does the work for us. We can't do the work, but Christ has done it for you and I. That's why the cross is so important. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 through 9, and he will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, and you are called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will do it. Second Thessalonians 3, 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. 2 Timothy 2, 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So what we're told in this passage to do is really two things, and they kind of relate, but they kind of don't. The command for us is to trust 
God. Look at all the things of the past that have taken place. Look at all of the Old Testament, all of the stories where the Israelites did not trust God. And ultimately their end was they were judged and there was death that took place. Now we look ahead and Paul takes that judgment and he applies it to the end. Right, that when we die, we will be judged by God. And ultimately, if we are not trusting in God in every aspect of life, we're not trusting in God, then our judgment, our punishment that comes later is an eternal death, not just a physical one. It's unbelief. So trust God. And then Paul gives us this pledge that God makes. Because God is faithful. That in all of the stories, God was right there. In all of the stories, God was rescuing and saving his people. In all of the stories, in your story, in my story, what we know to be true is our circumstances will be good, our circumstances will be bad, and that those are going to fluctuate up and down through our entire life. But the one thing we know to be true for believers in Christ is that no matter where we're at in our life, God is faithful and he never moves. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever, that his love is steadfast. That when we fail, when we are faithless, God is still faithful. That though our sin is tragic and though our sin causes us to rebel against God's kingdom, God is still faithful. He upholds his end of the covenant. What we see in this passage is the same thing that we saw in the last. That the key to the Christian life is perseverance. It's to hold to the faithful God. Look, just back in, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Don't you know that runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So do I run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air? Instead, I discipline my body. I bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And he jumps into the passage that we just read, looking back at Israel to show us that is the, uh, the, the, the perseverance, the holding fast to Christ, the staying true to the faithful God that matters in our life. So the question we ask, the question I ask, is what's keeping us from persevering? What are the hurdles that are going to cause us to struggle? When we look at our life and we look at where we're going and where we've been, what are the places where we tend to doubt, where we tend to fear, where we tend to not trust the faithful God? Where are the places in our life where we take the worldly thinking and we apply it, where we elevate ourselves or our own understanding or any other mankind's understanding over what the Word of God says? Where are we embarrassed for Jesus? Where are we scared to share our faith? Where are we creating idols? Not these little golden figures that we throw in the fire and they come out as a calf and we set up and we make our kids pray to, but where are the idols in our life that are causing us, that are controlling us, that are pulling us away from the Lord? Where's the sin? Where's the discontentment in your life? Where's the desiring of things that God doesn't have us to desire? Is there grumbling? It doesn't happen here, right? That's the other side of Scurry County. I won't say Hermley. Is 
What is keeping us from persevering? What is keeping us from recognizing that we see all of these things over and over and over in the scriptures? What is keeping us from recognizing these examples that God has given us? And he's clearly telling us these are sins that we need to repent of, not good things that we need to coddle. Where is it that we should be rejecting the world and trusting in Jesus? Because the truth is you and I are not enough. We're not Jesus. You're not the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. So what I don't want to do, and what Paul's not trying to do in this text, is he's not trying to say if you're a believer in Jesus, then you need to question your faith. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sins, if you've turned to Jesus and you believe in God, you believe that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, as Scripture alone is teaching and proclaiming these things, we hold to that close-fisted and tighted. We're believers in Jesus Christ. And we may struggle, we may have seasons of prodigalness in our lives, but we hold to that salvation tightly because we believe in Jesus and only in Jesus is the one who's going to save us through grace and through mercy. That that gives us an assurance of salvation. That even when we struggle, we're not a good enough sinner to earn our way out of God's grace. That God is a far better Savior than you and I are sinners. We're not going to lose our salvation from that. We can't lose our salvation if we're genuine believers in Jesus Christ, but we can grow in Jesus. That we can repent of our sins. That we should be being sanctified in our life. That we should be more mature Christians today than we were last year. And we should be more mature Christians next year than we are right now. And there are things that you and I can do to help that process of sanctification along that God has given us. Ordinary means of grace. Are we praying? Are we reading God's word? We are people of the book. Do we know it? We're meeting with one another. Are we seeking discipleship with one another? Or are we just coasting? God is faithful. Trust in the Lord. Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for this text of scripture that you've given us. God, as we look through your word, as we Uh, look at what you have given us. The Old Testament, as much your word is the New Testament, that it draws us to you, that it reveals you to us, God, that it helps us to grow in you. God, I pray that we wouldn't leave with all of these legal demands, with all of these morals, with all of these things that we're trying to do to reach up to you, but rather, God, we would understand the gospel, we would understand grace, we would understand mercy. We would understand the freedom that you've given us in you, Jesus, is to obey, to grow, to be honest with our lives, to repent where we need to repent, to be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, to trust in you more. Thank you for Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Dylan will lead us in another song.